Hello and welcome to The Good, The Bad and The Advertising, the show where we ask if the world were our client, what would the brief be? In each episode, we look to tackle some of society's biggest challenges with the same creativity and strategic rigour that Adland employs to tackle a client brief. I am Amy Williams. I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, Dino Myers-Lampty, and our special guest this week is Diolo King. Diolo is not only an expert in social media, having been an early employee at Facebook and now the VP of Paid Social at Essence, but she's also the co-founder of I Am History, a platform designed to celebrate and amplify black history and black culture. So welcome to the show, Diolo. Thank you for having me. That's such an amazing welcome. I'm like, I feel very excited to be here. Yeah, I hope I do industry proud. Try not to make a fool of myself as well. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I'm excited to like talk about this topic actually. I'm quite passionate about it. So I think I might have to like rein myself in and come at this uh, also like an advertising lens as well as a person consumer lens as well. No, don't don't rein yourself in. I I want full force. This sounds awesome. It's a good topic. So, um, all right, I'll kick off the intro. Steve Jobs once said that the computer is a bicycle for our minds. He was inspired by a study he'd read in Scientific American, which tracked the energy efficiency of different animals. The study found humans to be embarrassingly inefficient, about a third of the way down, and the condor topped the list, using the least energy to move a kilometre. There was only one thing that could knock the condor off its rather smug perch. A man with a bicycle. With a bicycle, humans are the most efficient animals on the planet. So this week, we're going to discuss how advertising can help get more people off their useless two legs and onto their bicycles. And to be honest, the pandemic has already done half the job for us. Lockdown has meant that our streets are quiet, the air is clean, and frankly, cycling through the pouring rain is still preferable to sitting on a cramped bus surrounded by other people's breath. No longer is the international bike market propped up by a few ardent mammals. For those who don't know, a mammal is a middle-aged man in Lycra. According to the CEO of Halfords, their staggering 3x growth in the last 18 months has been driven primarily by women and the under 35s, all clamouring to buy a bike. And this cycling renaissance is pretty good news. According to a report by the TfL, if all Londoners cycled for just 20 minutes a day, this would prevent the one in six deaths that are a result of physical inactivity, whilst also decreasing our risk of dementia, depression, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and so much more. The report estimates that cycling would save the NHS £1.7 billion a year. And this is before taking into account the 27,000 people that die annually from pollution-related illnesses in the UK. In contrast, there are approximately 116 cyclists who tragically die each year on UK's roads. Cycling is statistically safer than gardening, but the risks are real. And according to the 2020 National Travel Survey, 66% of adults agreed it's too dangerous for me to cycle on the roads. So today we ask, how can the ad industry get people back into the saddle? And Diego, I want to start with you because you mentioned when we were discussing the topic that you learned to cycle as an adult. So this has been quite a new recent experience for you. What was that like? Yeah, I was, um, I learned to cycle as an adult. I probably learned maybe like seven years ago. 
I grew up with my mom, single parent mom, but she didn't know how to ride a bike. And um, she grew up in Nigeria. And I just don't think at the time, I'm not going to speak for all Nigerians, my disclaimer out there, just my own personal experience, my mom, but um, it just wasn't a thing when she grew up. And so when she came to the UK, it also wasn't a thing. Um, but naturally growing up in the UK, in London, you see everyone on bikes. And I was like, I want to learn. And my mom was like, she had 10,000 other things to worry about. So that just wasn't a priority. But as an adult, and I think this is why this topic really spoke to me, because I think I went through all of like the learning curves in terms of how do you feel safe on a bike? How do you learn to ride a bike? I think you have this fearlessness as a child when you when you're doing anything. They always say that if you're going to learn something, it's best to learn it as a child. Mm -hmm. So as an adult, I was very aware of the fact that one, naturally, I'm quite clumsy, but two, safety, not looking like a fool. And just the fear mm-hmm. factor as well. Like, how are these two wheels going to keep me? And I'm quite, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say like I'm massive, but, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thick woman, as they would say. There's a lot of weight. So that fear factor of how is this? <laughs> it was a real fear. How am I going to stay up, upright in this? And I'm not even going to try and pretend like I understand, like, the science of it, but it worked, clearly. So it was actually when I went on holiday. So I think I did it in increments. I did the classic free training that the council provides. That was a disaster because I just couldn't. <laughs> the guy, I remember him saying, okay, now just go. And I would just be standing there. And he's like, no, you just have to go. And I, was, and I was decked out. I had my helmet. I had, my, <laughs> I had everything. I had the knee pad. Oh, my God. I would pad. Paid to watch this. <laughs> Literally, if you can imagine, like, I think I was in my like, late 20s, like this grown-ass woman looking like an overprotected child. And so I did run about, I think it was like one and a half hours a week for four weeks. And then I kind of understood how it worked. So I think at that point, at the end, I could cycle, but I wasn't a confident cyclist. So if I got on a bike... I wouldn't have enough confidence to actually cycle, even though I kind of technically knew. And then when I went on holiday, I was in an area where everyone cycles. And even just to get about, it was just more efficient to cycle. And so slowly through on that particular holiday, I kind of just built up that confidence of just going at my own pace, not trying to like run before I can actually just crawl. I don't know what the equivalent is for cycling. But I think one day mm-hmm. I just got on it and it just, I knew what I was doing. I was breaking. I know it was crazy. I was like, I, I even to the point, and to this day, I still love it. I can like put my arm out and indicate and feel confident about it. All those small wins where you're like, it's very basic. This is not anything exciting. But from someone that was like, just fully scared to just actually get on the bike, to being able to just like almost commute on a holiday and like indicate mm-hmm. and stop. And it changed my life. I always knew I wanted to cycle because... I've lived in areas where actually it was just more efficient to just jump on your bike and go down to the high street and get a few bits and pieces. But that fear factor, that confidence bit. And also um, I lived on a hill and no one wants to be struggling up a hill. It was a long journey. So I think seeing it from that perspective, I think it's quite interesting because I've seen the gaps and, and it kind of fueled some of the ideas that I have for our chat today. And what drove you to learn as an adult? You know, you said you started in your like early 20s. What was the driving force? I think, so this is, I'm going to get a bit hippie. I think one of the things that I have personally is I don't want to have a life of regrets. So I was like, I don't want to be like 50 and be like, I didn't learn to like cycle because I was scared that people were going to make fun of me. So I'm very much that type of person anyway. So I actually didn't mind people looking at me when I was decked out in my helmet, elbow pads, knee pads, because I'm just like, listen, YOLO. 
But I think more importantly, that's kind of just like the the hippie side. But I think more importantly, it was everything that you kind of discussed in the opening. So the health benefits of it. Mm. So, so I, I'm not a runner. I'm just not. I tried it. It's not for me. I just get bored really easily. So I was like, maybe that could be an efficient way of having exercise. The um, accessibility to get places quickly without driving. So I'm also a driver. So I come out from that lens. I'm not sure if you both drive as well. Um, so I think that's also an interesting relationship, being a cyclist and a driver. Um, and also, I just, I'm, a, I'm not like an environmentalist activist, but I'm very conscious that I don't want to get in my car to drive three minutes just to get a pint of milk. So I've always been quite conscious of that. It just didn't feel right. So I was like, cycling is that in between. Yeah. And also just FOMO, like being on holiday and friends getting on bikes and me just being like, oh, okay. I'll just get the coach and I'll see you there. Like I wanted to be involved in it. So I think all of that, I was like, all right, let's just figure out a way to make this work. The thing about the cycling thing, which I think you mentioned, I think we've got to think about some of the the negative things about cycling, first of all, because you mentioned a few in terms of fear, in terms of confidence. And I think that that's quite universal. But I also think there are a couple other things. So for example, getting sweaty in the morning before you, you know, you, you arrive in the office you used, to, you used to work at Facebook, so you probably had the showers in the office and all the rest of it. So probably that wasn't a problem. But uh, but for, for a lot of people, that is not a luxury. And um, and I think that's a real thing. I used to cycle when I was in London. Um, when I lived in Wolfenstein, I used to cycle into central London. So that was quite a, quite a journey. I always remember, I mean, I was a bit of a fair weather kind of cyclist. But I also do remember just how organized I had to be to cycle. So just had, how prepared I had to be, you know, how, how I had to have all the clothes kind of like carefully folded and all the rest of it. And I don't even have hair. So, you know, the, the, you know I, I had like probably at least kind of like 25 minutes saved in that journey. <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, that's probably been optimistic. So I think there's a big kind of like thing about just the practicalities of cycling. And so this brief probably, you know, should probably be also looking to, you know, think about how it can answer some of those kind of practical challenges but beyond that I think it is um you know there there are are a lot of positives I think the other kind of major negative for cycling which uh we haven't really talked about is is it can be unsafe all right so so you you learn how to cycle which is kind of great in terms of because you need to be a confident cyclist when you 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 know you hit the roads but also the roads you know we're we're talking about kind of gaps the potholes in in the roads are a real kind of crisis point and they are actually a real danger as well so no matter how good a cyclist you are if you're faced with some gigantic pothole and, you know, you're in a squeezed situation or so, it can be dangerous. And you've got to be, you know, I don't think they train you for that. I don't think they will. I'm not sure. But, you know, those, that's like the unexpected thing in the road. And, uh, and I, I remember um, this great kind of street artist. I don't know if you came across it once. It went a little bit viral called Wanksy. Who, um, yeah, so Wanksy uh, basically uh, graffitied up all the potholes with penises and vaginas and rude kind of like, you know, nipples and things and whatever else, um, just so the council will pay more attention to the potholes and actually fill them up. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. So, um, you know, we could get Wanksy back out on the streets for, for, for one, just to um, yeah fill up the potholes. I like that. And I think you, re- you raised a really good point, Dino, because... Oh gosh, I'm, as I'm talking, I'm like, this cycling journey has been a journey for me because I I commuted for work at a certain point when I um, lived in London Bridge and I worked in central London and that was really great, like 20 minutes, 25 minutes. 
amazing commute, amazing scenery. Mm. And then I moved to East London in Canning Town. And I was like, I'm still on the cycle because I love it. It was a great distressor from work, but it was absolutely horrific. And I was like, this is not what I want pre and post work to the point where I actually turned from a commuter to a recreational cyclist. And it really, I was really upset about it because um, it was a great way to, like I said, de-stress after work, but also I was like cycling 20 minutes, 25 minutes a day. So I could actually see the physical benefits of it without having to think about it. I didn't really have to go to the gym unless I wanted to do a certain workout because you're commuting. And it was a great way to think and to meet people as well. And then when I moved to East London, your point about the roads as well, I was just like, even though there were cycle lanes, so I don't remember the names of it, but there are like particular cycle routes from East London into central London. But it was just, I just felt really unsafe. Like some of the junctions are going in front of car junctions. I had a few incidents where cars didn't stop at the junction. And it also just wasn't enjoyable. Like I was like classic Amsterdam in my head. I just want to cycle down the lane and I want to have the wind in my hair. And going through traffic at like 8.30, quarter past eight in the morning is not an enjoyable experience. And I'm not a Lycra cyclist. I think that's also important. I think... In the cycling world, I think there are different tribes and you've got the tribe of people that are like Lycra. And there's no offence to anyone that is a Lycra cyclist. Like there is space for everyone. But there are some people that are like, you know, this is like, I think to your point, Dina, that you made about this is the organisation of it. And people are in the mindset of I'm going to cycle and, you know, this is a bit of a, a thing. They're all decked out. They've got the tech. I was not that person. It's quite alienating, right? All of exactly. the stuff you need. They're a pretty big barrier, aren't they? The, the mammals. They are a barrier yeah. to a lot of people who are not currently in it. <laughs> yeah, because it feels like an in-group and you don't feel a part of it. Like all of the lycra helps them feel part of something and that is intended to, you know, be a, a tribe. Also, also, let's let's just, you know, focus on them a little bit longer, all right? Because when I'm, when I'm driving my car, right, so I, I am a cyclist, you know, I cycle, I would say commuter type cyclist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I, I love cyclists as much as I hate them. And I love driving as much as I hate drivers as well. You know, I, I've got hate on either side, equal measure, whatever. But, uh, but when I'm driving down country lanes and I come across the mammals that are not only cycling slowly, but they're cycling in rows, you know, they're all like, as in they're stacked, they're, they're, they're next to each other. And there's a couple of people plodding along, having a conversation on a country lane. And you're just like, what is that about? You know, there's a time and a place when there's not cars around. But when there are cars, you know, you're holding up traffic and you're just kind of hogging the road. You're just, it's just an accident waiting to happen, you know, for, for one person or the other, because suddenly you've got to go out into the other road to overtake which is dangerous, but also you're just kind of like building up resentment and hate for, uh, you know, anyone that chooses to cycle. And I think that also fuels this perception that is also a barrier to cycling because you're a cyclist. So I think you can balance that viewpoint. You've got equal hate for everyone, which is great. But yeah, sounds um, really wholesome. Yeah, <laughs> really balanced. <laughs> but I've spoken to people and I try to talk to them about community, especially if they do live and I would never like push anyone to do something they're not comfortable with but just inquiring you know why don't you cycle and they're like oh my god like have you seen those cyclists like they're just there like taking up space and I think that's a really big barrier maybe something we can talk about of how we can change that overcome it change that perception because I think just even being associated people have looked at me sideways and I'm like I'm not part of that crew I'm really not 
it's a huge obstacle to overcome. But I don't know, and maybe this is something we should also talk about, I don't know if that's a London-centric view or a Southeast-centric view. I'm not sure what that if that is applicable across the nation. I don't know if either of you can talk to that. I mean, certainly mammals can be found across the UK. <laughs> I mean, I come from Shrewsbury and the amount of mammals is is really quite obscene. So definitely like that tribe of cyclists, the ones that are you know very serious about it, that do take up a lot of space on the road, that... Um, that go very fast, like that. That is definitely a, a tribe that exists across the UK, and I think where this brief feels like it's naturally tending towards is more of the everyday cyclist, right? It's the the commuter or the or the cyclist who does it just for fun, but it's someone that's you know they're buying a sort of thousand pound bike, and it's probably their first bike, and they're using it to get between A and B, and so that does feel like a very different kind of cyclist. And actually, I just want to call back to a point that you made, Dino, about the faff. And the faff factor, I think, is actually a really interesting piece of the brief because I agree and I have hair. So, yeah, I have like the extra 25 minutes. I came across this campaign that's been run by uh, the Olympic cyclist Chris Boardman. If you guys remember him, he was one of the first like medalist, yes. Olympic medalists yeah. in the UK. So he has done this very interesting campaign he started it back in 2014 and he's still hammering it. But basically, it's against helmets. This is really interesting. So he he doesn't believe in compulsory helmet laws. He cites an example in Perth, in Western Australia. They introduced mandatory helmet wearing and cycling decreased by 30%. And I have this lovely quote from him. He said, I want cycling to be an everyday thing that people can do in everyday clothes, whether you are 8 or 80 and that just, I, I love that idea. He's like, why is it on the cyclist to protect ourselves? Why do we need high vis and like headgear? Like we're just going a very leisurely pace on a very safe bike. It's the traffic that's the problem, not us. So don't make us wear helmets, build cycle lanes and make sure that we can cycle to work in our workloads and not have the faff factor. It becomes this balance of how does the infrastructure of the roads work? And I think that's always, from my like perspective, being... The imbalance is that we know the benefits, we know how it's going to make it um, better for people, but also the environment. But, and maybe this is the shift that COVID has made, I think such a capitalist industry where everyone's on the go, everyone's got somewhere to be yesterday, people are in a rush. I think that heightens the level of speed that we live and work at. So mm-hmm. not only are cyclists moving fast, but traffic is moving fast. Um but I think COVID really slow, has slowed everything down. And I think yeah. the question is how, what's that new balance, right? I think there's this bit of naivety to think that we're going to remain as still as we were last year. But I'm hoping that we don't go back to what we were in 2019. Is there going to be like stronger commitments from the councils and the governments to really build real cycle lanes, not just like part of the road that's painted in blue? Um, mm. Are we going to have cyclists? I think, and I spoke to a few friends, if the cycle lane was so blocked off from actual traffic, I think that would also mm. prevent or kind of alleviate the fear of the safety aspect of it. Because I think to um, I think to the point that we've made, it's then it's like, oh, okay, I can go a bit leisurely because my only watch out are just cyclists around me. Whereas when you've got that element of traffic there, you've got to have all your senses together. And also, and I don't know how controversial this is, you don't have to have a license to cycle, especially in cities when you're on the road right so you've got some cyclists that have no road knowledge whatsoever in the sense mm. of they can't drive so they know the stop signs 
or do they actually know all the road signs? And so I think to the point that cyclists are sometimes the hazards as well. And I don't want to police it because it does take the joy out of it, but we have to be realistic, right? Drivers only become really aware and really responsive when, when they're expecting cyclists. When they're expecting at every turn, at every you know move, there could be a cyclist there. And you almost need the quantity of cyclists to be so great on the road or just to become a norm that people drive with caution all the time rather than on the odd chance, oh, if I'm unlucky, there might be a cyclist. And that's and that actually is a, uh, that actually is a finding. Um, in, in my research I came across, the more cycling is encouraged and taken up, the safer it becomes. The number of cyclist deaths decreases with the increasing popularity of it. So th- there is definitely this sort of safety in numbers for various reasons. It, it does make traffic more aware, but it also puts more pressure on councils to, to accommodate those people. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. What you were saying, Diolu, about um, knowing how to cycle, though, I think it's really important in terms of knowing how to drive to know how to cycle. And it's a bit of an unrealistic expectation in a sense because, you know, we learn to cycle and we should learn to cycle as kids. So, you know, you don't learn to drive as a kid. So some of those mm. kind of road signs and all the rest of it. But I always say that in terms of to drive in or cycle in London, you have to expect drivers to make mistakes. You have to kind of like, you know, expect yeah. drivers to do silly things. And you almost have to ride it like you're driving a car. Yeah. So you know, you're always visible. You know, you're, you're stopping before they're stopping, all that kind of stuff. Not, not too many people think like that. They learn to cycle. They know how to kind of like operate a bike, but they don't necessarily know how to anticipate the mistakes of a driver. And, and also, I think um, you've got to, you know, there's certain rules that probably need to change. You know, the whole kind of like traffic light thing, the whole kind of don't go through a red traffic light. And this is the back to the whole kind of like camps of good and bad cyclists. There are people that abuse it and do it, you know, in a terrible kind of like dangerous way. And then there are things where you're just like, actually, cyclists should have permission to take a left at a traffic light. Yeah. You know, when there's like, you know, in, in, in America, you can take a right at a traffic light if you're driving. So it's like the equivalent should be the same for if you're cycling in a in a in a in That's England a really because, good point. well i mean half the time a lot of these kind of deaths as cycling happen because people are, are sitting at traffic lights at the side of a lorry or something like that and they're waiting for the thing to go green and then when they pull off they can't pull off as fast as the other vehicle and that vehicle doesn't see them and it takes a left and it crushes them and you know on the railings at the side so you know you've got to get yourself out of the way you've got to either be ahead of it or behind it so yeah i think that's one suggestion the good news is that in response to the lockdown and the pandemic and, and the increased popularity of cycling, the government has actually announced a renewed level of investment in cycling. So um, across the UK, uh, they announced in September they're going to be investing £2 billion in pop-up bike lanes, in wider pavements, in safer junctions. They're going to offer bike repair vouchers to people. And they're also going to build more traffic-free neighbourhoods, like Soho, for instance, is now fully pedestrianised. So... There is this investment coming in that will kind of, I, th- I think, to, to a lot of your points there, Dino, like it will help. Um, it's not going to change those traffic rules. I actually think that's a really interesting idea around junctions. But it will at least give um, cyclists a little bit more of their own space and hopefully reduce the exposure to these like super risky junctions and things like that. So I guess for this brief it feels like we're focusing more on commuters, but that's one thing I wanted to just clarify with you guys. Are we going to are we going to talk to commuters or are we going to talk to cyclists who would do it as a hobby? And then I think the other question is about, is it about education and about getting people a driver's license for, for cycling? Or is it about making it more accessible and getting people who would otherwise not consider it? So are we talking to existing cyclists and getting them safer or are we talking to 
bringing in new cyclists, getting more people onto the saddle. I've got a view just to chip in here, which I think um, we should be talking about not commuters, I think, is my kind of pitching in here. Only because I think that if we can um, get more people cycling on a weekend, just casually, you know, going to the shops, and I think the world would be a better place if, you know, our kind of weekends and where we live is a different pace from, you know, the nine to five kind of Monday to Friday stress of kind of getting to work and back again. They're doing it for you know mm-hmm. purely kind of like working kind of reasons. I think it'll be more enjoyable for people to to cycle kind of casually for less kind of pressured reasons. I agree. I oh, I was also I'm glad you, you articulated that in a better way than what I was going to say, Dino, because I was going to be like, actually looking at a like a proper media campaign. I was like, I think the barrier to entry is getting people doing cycling and recreational, and I think the mm. commuters are like your retained audience. They're your repeat audience. They already know the benefits. We don't really need to convert them. We need to make them safer, but that's probably a whole other conversation. So, yeah, I agree. Mm. It's about that casual cycling. And I think when people are converts with that, it then leads to like more cycling, longer cycling, um, understanding what type of cyclist you are. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's a much lower barrier to entry. And as you say, you build the confidence to then mm. maybe explore using your bike for other things in the future. So should we focus this around so quite a family-focused brief? Um, yeah. Sort of that yeah. city dweller, perhaps they've got young kids, you know, 25 to 45 on the weekends, know how to cycle, probably learned as a kid, but don't really consider doing it in, in the city. I would even like go a bit, a, a little bit broader, it includes maybe like 18, like students as well. Okay. So, Interesting. Um, or not even just students, I would say younger people, whether you're at home, whether you're at college or university, I think there's also some recreational support in that aspect. It's been a while since I've been at university, but I feel people tend to be in like um, particular towns, smaller towns where cycling might be a bit more easy to get about as well. And they also are on a tighter budget. So Yeah, that's actually a really interesting angle because if you can build the behaviour then, that it feels like on. actually follows, yeah. Yeah. So maybe like, it's like an 18 to, I don't know, 45 bracket, mm. potentially. It's like the whole of the UK, but, you know, I feel like that's what most media briefs look like these days. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So we're going to target people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> super helpful. The whole population, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, I feel like we've got quite a clear idea though. Um yeah. and yeah. actually, you know, we can we can kind of perhaps yeah. when we're in the ideas pick and choose a little bit where yeah. we want to focus. So with that, shall we shall we progress onto the response to brief section? So first we're gonna think about how we would tackle this brief if we had no budget. We're just gonna have to hustle and make things happen. Um, through partnerships and creative thinking. <laughs> yeah. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking actually, so we've got the safety bit that we've spoken about and the fear of what prevents people from cycling. But then it's like, okay, say then you do get a bike or we've got the Boris bikes, I think, or Santander bikes. I, I don't know why I keep calling them the Boris bikes. So they're they're available. But at the same time, I don't know the numbers, but I'm assuming that usage is only for a like, small percentage of people. So... I love a bit of gamification, but where it makes sense. So I love my Apple Watch because actually as soon as I could see how many steps I'm taking, that changed my whole mindset. Mm. So 
I wonder if there's some form of like loyalty aspect that we can layer on top of that. So if you are cycling, you build up an accumulation of maybe a free ride or you can give that free ride to a friend or family. But there's we know the health benefits. We know how good it is for the environment. But there's still a hesitancy for people to actually change that behavior. And so I think what if there was a partnership where it's like, okay, if you had like this, use the Boris bike. So if you had your own bike, but I don't know, for a week you cycled, I don't know, what, three miles or like, you know, two miles just Mm -hmm. to make it a bit realistic. You unlock 15 minutes free with a Boris bike that you can gift to a friend, potentially something along those lines. And then there's a bit more of an incentive to actually, rather than jump on the bus, I can just, if I'm just cycling like from one end of the road down to another, jump on the Boris bike. I wonder, because I agree with you about the the Apple Watch and the steps counter. Like, I've now got almost expert knowledge of how many steps I've taken because I check so much. At the end of a walk, I play a game with myself, (laughs) uh, where I guess how many steps I've done. And I get it spot on because I'm like so obsessive with steps. And I just wonder, like, we need like number of rotations of the wheel or something because a distance just doesn't get me as excited as steps. But, you know, when you're on a bike, you don't get your step counter. And so I just wonder if we need like a... I don't know, some sort of metric that means that we can gamify it in a quantifiable way that's not just miles. Yeah, yeah. To add into that, um, so I'm actually a uh, Santander cycle uh, customer, let's say, let's call it. I I guess in terms of when I moved out of London and wasn't able to commute into London on a bike, I would kind of like commute to overend, I guess, on a bike in terms of, you know, to the station on my own bike. And then when I go into London, I'll just, you know, take a Boris bike, Santander cycle. Really? I've literally never met anyone that uses them. You, you don't, you've never met anyone that uses it's them? It's lovely to meet you. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. I'm, I am honoured to be, you know, your special guest, <laughs> subject, specialist subject. I have done so many miles on that thing. I could Whoa. talk for hours about it. Yeah, so it's, um, it's a little bit like fairground-esque. I don't know if you ever went to Fort Park and had one of those kind of like fairground bikes, which are like deliberately difficult to ride. It's a little bit like that. They're kind of slow and chunky and, and a bit kind of weird, but you get used to it. There's a few things that are kind of great about them. I, mean, I, I love the fact that, you know, they, they go fast enough for London. They get you around from A to B. They're really kind of convenient. They are, because they're so kind of chunky, you don't try silly things with them. You don't kind of like yeah. try to weave in and out okay. of traffic and all the rest of it. You feel a little bit kind of like invincible to some degree, but you can be seen. They're big, they're bold. They've always got lights. Brakes are always good, whatever else. Uh, they've got a little basket so you can chuck stuff in. So there's many, many reasons why they're kind of great. The reasons why they're not so great are mainly because sometimes you arrive in your location at kind of key peak times and you can't actually dock them. Or sometimes you arrive at a location expecting to get one and you can't because they've all been taken or, or the ones that remain are just not, not working. That's the complete kind of frustration with them. So that definitely those things need to be sorted out to make them a little bit kind of easier to use. I think the, the thing about the whole kind of like bike thing is definitely in terms of making it easy, the, the, the whole kind of data thing. I think when I was most impressed by the Santa Day Cyclers was once a year, I'll get this email that will be a summary of my statistics, a summary cool. of you know all the journeys I've taken, how, how far I've, 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 I've ridden. Um, and the, I think it's things like calories and whatever else. But it had all these kind of different statistics, which I was like, wow, this is absolutely brilliant. And they needed to make more of that in a sense, because that was the moment where I really realized uh, just how much I'd, I'd done mm. on the bikes and how, how far I'd, I've actually gone. Because I think that, you know, while we know the health benefits, unless we're frequently reminded of them, we just take it for granted, I guess. 
so that kind of like visualization of the, of the statistics is really kind of important. But I also do agree in terms of some way of gifting to others to introduce other people into it could be a nice incentive to, to carry on doing it. Um, so I could have given you, Amy, like 15 minutes experience of uh, a bicycle so you could join the gang. I think that's a wicked idea. I can't believe they sent you that. That's so nice. I, it reminds me of Google Maps sends you your month in review. And it's just so fun seeing your roots. You know, part of me is like, oh, Jesus, they know my life. Right, I need to stop giving them all my data. And part of me is like, wow, <laughs> this is so cool. Give them more data. Yeah. But yeah, seeing where I've gone around London and being like, oh, yeah, that was that day. That was when I saw so-and-so. You know, it's so nice. It's such a nice little value add. So I think that back to the whole kind of like, you know, what we enjoyed most about lockdown was when the streets were quiet. No one was in a rush to get anywhere. And they encouraged people to, you know, go out and cycle. So more cycles were, you know, bicycles were bought. There was much more kind of family cycling going on. And the key reason for it was because we knew the roads were safe. We knew that were, there were less cars on the roads. We felt much more comfortable. And actually people were driving slow. The cars that were on the road were consciously driving slower. They had less kind of reason to rush around because I guess they anticipate less traffic. They, they didn't have to be anywhere at a particular kind of time. And it was, you know, life was just nice, wasn't it? It was just nice. And <laughs> Sounds idealistic, that. Yeah, it was. It was just like, it was like living in, you know, in a fairy tale. So let's bring back that, basically. But, you know, I think that we can bring that back by creating that moment on a, on a Sunday. So I think that, you know, my idea would be, I'm going to use the medium of outdoor. And my idea with the medium of outdoor would be to actually... Pick a day like Sunday and, and, and try and make it a cycle day. Make it like Cycle Sunday or something where we're actively encouraging people to cycle rather than drive anywhere. And if we can publicize the fact that there are a lot of people that are opting in to cycle, then I think that, that that kind of information will make people, will encourage people to leave the car at home and actually cycle as well. So if we could use outdoor posters in various locations to say, you know, this Sunday there are going to be, a, you know, a thousand cyclists on this road or whatever. Um, so you can kind of like, you know, show your intent to cycle on particular routes and particular journeys, then I think that will, will help to tell people to avoid certain roads with cars. And then we make the roads quieter and then mm-hmm. more people just actually kind of like, you know, get involved in cycles. So a, a simple kind of like outdoor campaign that just using technology to allow people to say, I'm going to be cycling on Sunday, but really a campaign to make Sundays, cycle Sundays, that mm-hmm. people just drop the car decide to cycle and it's just assumed that you know you know like when a marathon happens or something it's like the roads are closed off and it's just like you know that's it you've yeah. got to choose another route pretty much do that for cycling on sundays but do it through cyclist demand and like public kind of force rather than having to officially close roads yeah i really like that that's really nice and i um, it kind of tied into my bigger budget but actually that could probably be scaled to this where we kind of follow the running agenda, so like the 5K sponsored runs, I think there's that sense of community. I think mm. part of the barrier is that cycling can be quite an individualistic thing, whereas it's, I think, you know, what you're talking about, which I definitely agree with, is, is bringing everyone together and making it making it part of the culture, part of what we do, rather than this is what a subset of people do. Um, and I also wanted to, like, challenge the whole mammal idea of having, like, sports brands actually do, again, what they do for running, but make more like day-to-day cycling gear or cycling mm. gear that is 
you know, a bit more for the fashionista or for the visually conscious person or just someone that doesn't want to wear lycra. Like, it doesn't look good on everyone. Like, you know, if you've got a few roles, you don't really want to be highlighting that. So, also, you're not going to be doing those speeds. You are not Chris Boardman. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this mm. is it. Even when I look at some people on the lycra, I'm like, where are you going? Like, this is not for the France. Like... <laughs> don't know but i love that idea of maybe like you can get like different sports brands to sponsor it um or even decathlon yeah. it doesn't have to be a nike or a puma um but that community aspect is, is great i love that yeah yeah me too cycling sundays i love the idea of drivers being like oh we can't go that way it's cycling sunday oh we've got to go around obviously it's cycling sunday I think, you know, when you're considering these sorts of briefs where it is about people changing behaviour, it's so important to emphasise what they're going to gain rather than what they're going to lose. And the idea that you gain these like quiet, pedestrianised spaces on a Sunday that's about community and about coming together and doing something uh, and you lose like traffic and noise and pollution, like framing it that way feels really powerful. Love so uh, my my free idea, I adopted a dog like most of the world. I adopted a dog during lockdown and he is the cutest little thing. And I, when I, I used to have a dog when I was little and she used to run next to my bike and we used to go together. This new dog I've adopted refuses to do that with like such passion. So I actually bought him a little dog basket and my gra- my grandma used to have a dog basket for her dog called Snoopy and he used to sit in the front and she'd cycle to town with him and he'd sit in the basket and she inspired me because I was talking to her about how I couldn't get my dog to run with the bike and it was really hard to buy a dog basket I like went on Amazon and I had to kind of read loads of these really obscure blogs and figure out what the safety requirements were and in the end I ended up making my own one and I like built it and I got some fleece and I lined a crate and I, I had to build it all and then I went out on a ride and uh, my partner took a picture of us and I put it on my Instagram. Guys, it was my most liked picture on Instagram ever. Like people love that content. Dogs in bike <laughs> baskets, people love that content. So that's my idea is like basically an organic social campaign where you target people that have adopted dogs in lockdown because you know they're the right sort of demographic and actually cycling with your dog in your basket and going to like a picnic or something and like his, his little his little ears flop up in the wind and he looks like a little bat dog and it's so cute so i just think if we yeah basically make it easier to buy a dog basket seed it out to some influencers that have adopted dogs and just make it quite a like quite a, a bit of a trending piece of content that people post on their stories. Dog riding in the park. I can see where this is going. Yeah, a whole new definition of dogging. I love <laughs> it. I really love that. And it, it sounds like I think one of the things that all three of ideas tap into is is that sense of community and togetherness. Yeah. I think that sounds like it's one of the magic formulas of how do we actually make this an inclusive activity um because even with like the dog cycling bit it's social media it's sharing those pics i love it i'm actually thinking about how i can scale my million pound budget actually i feel like i want to do all our ideas and just like buy all the advertising to like <laughs> make people aware of it like dog basket cycling sunday yes like gamified dog basket cycling sunday exactly <laughs> How many dogs have we got? How many wheels have we spun? <laughs> How many collective wheels have we spun together? Uh, yeah, girl, done. So we'll end the episode now then. <laughs> <laughs>
Should I check one of these uh, Bezos, Bezos bucks ideas? Yeah, 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 let's do right. it. If I had all the money in the world, I'm going to stick with outdoor as a medium to amplify um, an idea, a thing that exists. And back to you know what you guys were talking about in terms of statistics that encourage you to do something. I think that's uh, an important kind of motivator. And we all know about Strava, you know, the app, Strava, the app, which you know a lot of people use for running, but also cycling. And one of the kind of great things about Strava is how it makes it kind of competitive on a local kind of level. So even if you're doing your, you know, your, your commute or your little kind of like trip around the block, you know, you can get like, oh, yeah, this is your personal best, but also you're the fastest in this little stretch, you know, if you're riding or cycling or whatever else. And it makes it naturally a bit more kind of competitive in that sense, but also encourages you to just keep on, keep at it. And I think mm-hmm. that it'd be nice, firstly, if that was kind of broadened out to families in a sense. So, you know, it wasn't just about, you know, mammals trying to beat their personal best and get the records. But also just that kind of a statistic, it'd be nice if that was uh, a bit more publicized in a sense to just, again, encourage you. So, so with, you know, with outdoor technology, you know, you know, with camera recognition, facial recognition, all the rest of it, could we get a, a network of screens that recognize cyclists and show their, their information as they're cycling past it? So you can cycle from one location to another and it could recognize you and, and present your, your, your times, your scores, your distances. Uh, so it can encourage you along in your journey. And you could obviously opt into this kind of network of screens to display this information, but it's it's a bit like having a you know supporting kind of crowd cheering you on as you go past kind of outdoor screens to say right you know you're you know you're you're ten seconds better than your personal best on this stretch keep going this many calories this many things whatever you know and just do that a bit more publicly so everyone gets that kind of motivation and you can just see kids and families doing it as a bit of a thing as well. Because, you know, imagine kind of kids getting their times and, and knowing that they are, you know, better on this stretch than they were last time. I think that could be pretty cool uh, with a lot of money thrown at it. I love that. That's great. It also, I think that visualisation of data, I think, is really important because then you realise, oh, actually, I have moved this far or this is what I've done before. And it just brings it a bit more to life um, and personalised as well. Uh, love, mm-hmm. love it. Building on like what the 5K runs have done, I think it was Nike that have started it. They did the 5K runs, 10K runs. I was thinking, why don't we do that for cycling? So you've got the London. I think I was inspired by the London to Brighton cycle route. Like I love the idea of it, but I do not have the stamina to even think about trying to get involved in that. But what if we had that nationwide um, at certain points in the year? But rather than it being dependent times, it's actually all happening at the same time, like maybe once a month. There's a 5K cycle in like your local park or even community, like there's no parks. So I'll bring social media into it. Mm-hmm. You can um, tag or you can um, film yourself, like do a little TikTok, I don't know how, but get some content, hashtag um, 5K cycle route. But that element of making it more of a regular occurrence and making it part of every day rather than it's a case of if I feel like I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it. Um And I think with that budget, if we could do that across the nation at certain times, it then changes perception and changes people's attitudes to cycling. It becomes less of this, oh, this is what those people do and more of a case of this is what we do. Um, So that's how I'd want to like invest a budget. Again, the partnership bits I've already spoken about. I think it's great for like sports brands or even just life um, culture brands as well. It doesn't necessarily have to be sports. It's more about the normalization of it rather than this like intense um like specific sport and i think the other thing that i thought about with this million pound budget is if there's a way to actually facilitate um storage 
four bikes. So if oh, yeah. you use the Santander bike, that's great. But I think a lot of people in cities have like storage issues. Like where do I keep this bike? And um, keeping it outside probably doesn't feel as safe. So I think they've got it in certain parts of London where you can like buy bike storages or bike lockers. But I don't think it's as accessible as it could be. So is there a way that we could have like a local bike storage? What if there was like bike sharing as well? So if I'm only using my bike like on the Sunday and then it's free Monday to Saturday, how could I rent that out for someone in my local area? Almost like a zip car for cycles. That's a lot of ideas, but I think... That's a great idea. They're all good, though, because I really... I, I've done some of those organised runs, um, you know, like the half marathons and stuff, and it's so it's so social. You know, there's such an event. It's like a festival feel when you get there, and, and cycling needs that. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, I'd also like to jump on the fact of... Um, you mentioned about cycle safety in terms of storage, and, and I think that's a massive point as well. I think that, you know, the, the crime levels, you know, one of the most disappointing things about... You know, getting excited about cycling is, is when your bike gets stolen, you know, and then yeah. suddenly you're, you're stuck. And it happens too regularly. What's happened is people are buying more expensive, higher value bikes. That's the, where the trend is going, which is, I think it should be going the other way. I think that actually we need to encourage cheaper bikes. We need to encourage like cheaper, practical, but, you know, do the job bikes. Yeah. So there's no incentive to, start to, to, to steal them. And, and actually, this kind of idea of like sharing bikes you know, I've been to some places like, um, you know, if you go to a sea or island, I know it's a bit exclusive, et cetera, in terms of for different kind of like events and things. But there are bikes just all around the island that you can pick up and cycle anywhere. And you never, you know, ever think of kind of like stealing a bike as such because it's just like there's no value to it because they're everywhere and they're free. And imagine if we could have that more, you know, in, in, in different towns and cities, you know, a, a load of bikes that actually the value of them is, is pretty low that you could feel, you know, you could, you could quite easily just park it up somewhere and know that it's going to be there when you come back. Or there'll be another bike when you come back that you could pick up and use because yeah. they're like public community bikes. I like that. So I'm going to jump on that idea and I'm going to use that to fuel my million pound suggestion because I've been thinking as we've been talking, like, I had I had this other one prepared before the show, but I'm just going to, I'm going to go... I'm just going to go rogue because I love what you said earlier, Dolio, about how students are, you know, if you can get students cycling early, then you bake in the behaviour before they move to the big city or before they start commuting. And and you and also, you know, when you were saying about learning to ride as an adult, like the younger we get people signed up to this, the more likely they are to, you know, to, to take the risk and be brave and, and, and get on the bike. So my million pound idea is going to be focused around students, around campus universities. So I went to Warwick University. It's a, it's a campus and it is a ball ache walking around that campus. Like it, you have to basically leave like half an hour before any lecture, which as a student is like a huge amount to ask of someone. So I think let's take that bike share idea, that bike share scheme and apply it to campus universities and use our million pound budget to set up this bike share scheme. All the bikes are owned by the uni and it, it's kind of like Santander, but it's just like like you said, it's less formal. You just leave your bike and someone else can pick it up and cycle back. There's bikes in Amsterdam that have a lock built into them. The, the sort of the classic Dutch bike has just got a really simple little lock that just fits on the back wheel. So, you know, you could have it could be tagged to your library card, right? All the library cards open the bikes um, and anyone can cycle off with it. And then I was thinking, how can we make it like even funner and more relevant to students if, if all the bikes have a box on the back that's the size of the book so they can carry their books in it, but also they can carry pizzas in it. Oh, 
Mm. That's the win. That's the win. So you get like a basically get a kind of delivery box on the back so you can go and pick up your pizza. I was thinking like, what's the thing I love most about uni? And basically I just ate a lot of pizza. So that that's probably the, the, my idea. And I was also thinking like at uni, we always had these societies. Did you have this? Like you'd have like band sock and you'd have whatever, like uh, I was about to say chess sock. I'm sounding like such a nerd. There was cool societies as well. I just didn't join them. But the point is like, there was never a cycling society because it is seen as a mode of transport, not a hobby. So I'd fund a group of cycling societies around universities. I love that. And then we can tag on the, you know, Santander annual news update yeah, to news a data. week long. How long, yeah. how far have you gone? Where did you yeah, go? Yeah, yeah. How many pieces how many did pieces? you have? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're all the same page. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, nice. We've Tinder for cyclists. (laughs) Love it. Cycle dates. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, man. So many great ideas. Solve the world problems in an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that just about wraps up the episode. If you're listening and our conversation has inspired you to get back in the saddle, then uh, I found a couple of cool things you can check out. There's an organisation called Bike Works. They are an inspiring social enterprise that runs accessible bike clubs as well as bike taxis for the elderly and the isolated. They do tons of amazing work. If you have an old bike rusting in your garage, then donate it to the Bike Project and uh, your bike can be given to refugees and asylum seekers so they can have some freedom and be able to travel and, and access things like food banks or healthcare or education. You know, bikes are actually freedom for a lot of people. So um, there's a ton of great initiatives out there. Cycling is a seed that grows into something really, really quite powerful. So um, if you have your own ideas about this issue, then please do get in touch. We'll put all our LinkedIn bios in the show notes so you can get in touch with all of us and connect with us. Next week, we're going to be chatting with the leading brand and communications expert, Emma Cookson. So tune in for that. And please remember to subscribe and you know give us five stars. Why not? Uh, so that's all that we have for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Diolu for joining us and to thank you, our listener, for listening. Bye. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I don't know why I'm waving. <laughs> I know, waving isn't going to help. <laughs> Thanks for having me. 